This podcast channel is about you, successful international entrepreneurs, successful expats, successful investors, sponsored by ECJ Contacts. Thank you for joining us once again, HEJ.tax, and we're going to talk about U.S. taxes for international entrepreneurs and expats. Yes, thank you for joining us on Zoom. We also have people viewing on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, and on YouTube. For those on Zoom, feel free to type your questions. We've received a lot of questions in advance, so thanks for sending those in. If you have additional questions, once we've run through the questions that have already been submitted, we will go through the questions that are being submitted live right now. So we'll just basically we're going to take them in the order in which we receive them. And yes, John, yes, we got your question. So we will add that to the queue as well. For those viewing on Facebook and on the other platforms, feel free to type under the screen, uh, under the image, the video, the live stream. Just type your question and we will get it in the order in which it has arrived. So once again, thank you for joining us in HEJ.tax. We're gonna be talking about US taxes. Because I'm US qualified, I need to tell you, you know how it goes. Nothing I say here should be construed as advice, consider it an educational session, or if you want an entertainment, an entertainment session. We are tax advisors, but we're not yet your tax advisors, which means we do not know your situation inside out. Therefore, we professionally irresponsible for us or anybody else to give advice without being properly legally engaged and knowing the client situation inside out. So I'm gonna ask that you please mute yourself right so i'm gonna someone was just unmuted please remain on mute when we finish the questions that have already been submitted uh and you need to ask a question just raise your hand and we will approach them in the order uh you know i'll, I'll call on you and you'll be able to ask your question so i'm gonna start with the first question we got I have a question. So someone says, hello, Darren. Hello, Hannah. I have a question that I hope you can provide some information about perhaps during this event or in a future event. It is my understanding that US citizens living abroad who pay taxes on their full income to their country of residence, in my case, Canada, can treat all their income as foreign sourced on their US tax return. Yet often various tax experts and experts are like in quotes on internet forums state that many things must be US source and point to various US sourcing rules. For example, they state that dividends received from US companies must be US sourced, et cetera, et cetera. I'm wondering if you can provide some clarity specifically, three points. One, for US citizens living abroad and fully taxed abroad, can all their income be sourced to their country of residence? Would this include US dividends, IRA withdrawals, US annuities, et cetera? Two, if one sources such items to their country of residence, should one include a Form 8833, which is a, a treaty-based disclosure form? And three, is this general sourcing concept explained somewhere in the tax code? Thank you very much for your information in advance. Okay, so let's let's provide context. Let's, let's just get the general picture and then we talk about the specific. For those who are U.S. exposed and they're resident uh, abroad, I I have this acronym that I use that I think is I think is kind of cool. It helps you remember what your responsibilities are. I tell you, do your best. B E S T. What does that stand for? B stands for bank accounts, but I want to expand that definition and I say financial accounts. Basically, that's the first of your four responsibilities you need to disclose your financial accounts held outside of, of the United States. So financial accounts could be credit unions, banks, brokerage accounts, unit trust, pension funds, uh, any sort of structured investment fund, anything like that, it needs to be disclosed. 
it does not necessarily mean that it creates a tax liability, but it is a reporting requirement. That's number one. E, uh, you need to do estimated taxes. You need to figure out uh, in concert with your chosen tax professional whether you have uh, a U.S. report, a U.S. tax liability for the year, and you cannot wait until the end of the year or the following April to settle that. You need to pay it in at least four quarterly installments. Failure to do so uh, leads to underpayment penalties. So estimated taxes, pay attention to that. Third point, S, state taxes. Even though you're not resident in whatever your state is, most states in the union are domicile states, which means under certain circumstances, even though you're not physically present there for an entire year, you may still be deemed to be domiciled in that state. We, we tend to coach our clients on taking certain deliberate steps to shift their domicile from uh, one of the states that does have a state income tax to one of the nine states that does not have an income tax so that there's no confusion. So like in Nevada, Texas, Florida, uh, you know, Wyoming, Alaska, whatever. The point is that you may think if you're not there, you're not supposed to pay taxes, but we've seen time after time after time, people in for a huge surprise when they do return to the US at some point in time. And the state is welcoming you with a, a huge tax bill. So pay attention to your state. Last but not least, transfer taxes. You have a requirement to report when you transfer any asset above a certain threshold, of course to a friend, a relative, or, or whatever the case may be. And, and conversely, if you do receive a gift, so if you give, if you offer a gift or if you receive a gift, there may be a reporting requirement behind that. Again, most times, once you're within the, um, the, the lifelong gift exemption, you don't have an actual liability, but you certainly have a reporting requirement. So I'm speaking generally now. So now let's, let's talk about specifics. When you are doing in concert with whoever your chosen tax professional, you're doing your expat tax returns for the US. Typically, uh, depending on the number of jurisdictions you're exposed to. So let's say you're exposed to two jurisdictions. Let's say it's the US and Canada. Both tax on your worldwide income, both the US and both and Canada tax you on your worldwide income. So then the question becomes really who gets first bite of the cherry? If the income arises in the United States, most times it will be taxable in the US first. If it arises in Canada, then most times it'll be taxable in Canada first. Then people begin to panic and say, wait, wait, hold on. That means I'm gonna be double taxed, no. No, that's not true. Even without invoking the tax treaty between the US and Canada, it's unlikely that you will ever be double taxed. It can happen, but it's unlikely. Why? Because both jurisdictions recognize the concept of a foreign tax credit. So if it is you receive rental income from your rental property back in the US, it's taxable in the US first and foremost. And the CRA will obviously levy a tax on that. And then you get to offset that liability with what has already been paid to the IRS. Similarly, if you have shares in Tesla or Microsoft or whatever, uh, you know, it, ar it arises from the US, it will be taxable in the US first, but you get to offset that. Similarly, you have income that because you presumably you're in Canada and you're working, yes, you will have to pay taxes on that to Canada, right? But whatever you pay to the CRA can be used to offset whatever the liability, if any, to the Internal Revenue Service in the US. So that's in principle how it works. Now, of course, there's some nuances given the uniqueness of the relationship between the US and Canada and, and the treaty that's in play. So for example, uh, there are financial instruments or structures that are relatively tax-free under Canada law, but are taxable under US law. For example, registered retirement savings plans, tax-free savings accounts, registered educational savings plan, certain Canadian-based mutual funds, 
and under certain circumstances, like when you when you sell your your home or your primary residence, it can be tax free by the CRA, but still taxable in the U.S. Uh, similarly, the opposite may apply as well. Under certain circumstances, you may be receiving Social Security from the U.S., which under certain circumstances may be tax free in the U.S., but Canada is going to tax it. So it can go both ways where something is tax preferred in one jurisdiction, but not in the other. So that's where you pay specific attention and that's where it's worth getting the advice of a tax team so qualified to give it. What I also like though, is you, you put experts in quotes. What I've seen done, and I think this is, <laughs> this is really amusing. In one particular Facebook group, someone drew my attention to it. Someone asked for advice right, which is okay, that's what you're in the group for. But they very specifically said, if you are not licensed in the jurisdictions that I'm talking about, one, and two, if you do not have professional liability insurance to cover any advice you give, please remain silent. We understand that your heart is in the right place, you want to be helpful. But if you're not qualified, you should not be giving advice. You may think that your situation is similar to the situation that I just described, but it may not be. You would only understand the nuances if you were so qualified. And even if you're qualified, if you do not have the professional liability insurance to back it up, please, again, remain silent. I smiled when somebody showed me that and I looked at it because that's the right thing to do because so often we see people being misled by others who may be very well-intentioned. Their heart is in the right place, but they put uh, themselves and others in, in trouble. And conversely, you know, to, it, to offer your financial security and, and your financial well-being and put it in the hands of someone who's not qualified, basically putting your future in somebody else's hands, that is not often such a good idea. So I think you were right in asking your question to use your you know, air quotes to, to point to advisors. We do have on our website, hg.tax, uh, thousands of videos and articles on tax, uh, you know, freely available. You can have a look there, but more importantly, you may want to, at least for the first year, seek counsel from someone qualified to give it. I hope that helps. Next question. I'm just scrolling through Australia. So from Canada to Australia. Hi, I know the US Australia tax agreement doesn't include anything about Australian supers. For those who don't know, super stands for superannuation, which is kind of like uh, the most popular tax free retirement slash savings vehicle available to people who are uh, exposed to the Australian tax system. So, so that's what it is. It's kind of like an IRA, but much more anyway. So, okay. I know that the tax agreement doesn't include Australian supers, which is correct, but one, since we already pay tax on the way in, and I include that in my income on my U S taxes, how can we avoid double taxation on the contributions Two. Read the gains on the account. The super already takes 15% in taxes out of the capital gains before they include it in my account. While I haven't included the capital gains and in income in each year, it has already been taxed once. How can I avoid double taxation here? And sorry. And three, would separating the contributions from the gains when you claim a pension super distribution help? maybe agree to pay tax on the capital gains. So this, this person, whoever asked this, obviously did a lot of research and they're asking the right questions and they're thinking about it in the right way. It kind of mirrors what we were discussing when we were speaking about Canada in that there would be some vehicles that are tax preferred or tax advantage in one jurisdiction, but may not be so in the other. Uh, so you're right uh, in the double tax treaty between the US and Australia. It does not specifically mention supers or superannuation plans. Some people point to, uh, to Article 18.2, but our opinion is that it does not apply to supers. But uh, I just want to 
use that opportunity to say that the whole idea of superannuations when it comes to uh, US, someone who is exposed to both the US and Australia is quite contentious. Different tax professionals take, tend to take different positions, which is fine. Once, of course, they're prepared to you know, defend it just in case it's challenged by the IRS so that you don't get in trouble, that, that's fine. Once they're qualified to do so. So contributions to the superannuation, you're correct, they do not receive the same tax deferred treatment uh, as they would under other treaties. So it's pre-tax income in Australia when you're doing your Australian tax returns, but it's after-tax income when you're doing your US tax returns. So it does not reduce your taxable income. The second part, is the growth in the fund taxable to the US? Okay. It really depends. It, in general, the growth is not taxable unless distributions are being taken, unless the person is a highly compensated employee. There's a special carve out for those who may be HCEs. If it is that you're a highly compensated employee, that's a separate conversation. As well, if you are running a self-managed super. So if, if you know, the, you, just like with the US, you have the opportunity to manage your area on your own. If it is that it's self-managed, it becomes transparent according to US tax rules, which means the growth will be taxable. So when you're speaking to your tax advisors, generally speaking, you want you would expect to hear that growth in the fund is not taxable unless you're taking some sort of distribution. Unless, of course, you are a highly compensated employee or it's a self-managed super. So the growth in fund is not taxable. Yes, distributions are taxable. And yes, you may be thinking, well, hold on, you're gonna make me pay tax. I pay tax, US tax on the way in. Do you want me to pay tax on the way out? Then you have a conversation with your tax professionals about bifurcating the income uh, that you're getting, the, the distribution, the bifurcating distribution between what was what we call corpus or the principal, what was originally invested and the return on it. So the original investment, you're correct, is not taxable. Otherwise that would be silly, that's double tax, right? But the gain, so you need to be able to identify and you consider the tax team and get that done. The gains will be subject to, to tax, the US tax on the way out. So that's why it's important to sit and do the right calculations to make sure you can separate the original investment from the return the return will be taxable. Hope that answers your question. Moving on. And again, we have articles on this in heg.tax if you wanna have a look. Next question. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Here's some questions. One, if I own rental properties in an entity that pays me a salary, what will be the tax rate for my W-2 or 1099 income? Or would the tax be based on the income of the entity? Hmm. Next question, if I sell the property while living in Spain, so I guess they're living in Spain. If I sell the property while living in Spain, I understand the game will be taxed, is that correct? And three, if my income is around 100K, am I really being taxed at a 45% rate? Okay, so let's start at the beginning. If I own rental properties in an entity that pays you a salary, so I guess you own, but you're paying you, you know, you're being paid a salary. Are you a real estate professional? Basically, who, your tax professional will need to get more information as to what your relationship with the structure is. But let's let's just, let's make some assumptions to simplify it. You're asking whether they you'd be paid on uh, the tax rate for W two or ten ninety nine. It really depends. So the ten ninety nine would be if it is you are deemed to be self employed. So therefore, self employment tax will kick in. W two is if you are an employee uh, of this entity. So in order for anyone to make that determination, and again, this is probably outside of tax, we'd need to understand whether you have a contract for services or an employment contract. If it is you have an employment contract with that entity, then you're correct. It'll be paid like a W-2. 
And if you don't have an employment contract, if you have some sort of uh, contract for services, so you're a freelancer, you're an independent agent, then in your relationship with that entity, then you would be subject to self-employment tax. And, and again, as in the rates of tax, it really depends on your situation. Are you married filing jointly? Are you head of household? Are you filing single uh, from, from a US perspective? As, as you were, the marginal tax rate could be as low as 10%. If you're single, it'd be 10%. If you're earning up to just under $10,000, then it jumps to 12%, 22 and it tops off uh, at uh, 37%. If you're earning 500K or more, like 523K or more. So it, it really depends on your situation. Uh, so that's the marginal tax rate. The marginal tax rate will be the same whether you're on the 1099 or the W-2, i.e. whether you're an independent contractor or you're an employee. The difference between the two from a tax perspective is that the 1099 would attract the additional self-employment tax. However, if you reside in Spain and you are declaring and you're paying your social charges in Spain, then I believe there's a totalization agreement between Spain and the US, which means once you're paying, once you can prove you have some sort of document to prove that you are paying the equivalent of uh, social security in Spain, then you're relieved of paying the 15.3% self-employment tax to the US. So I hope that helps. You're asking if, you, if your income is around 100K, are you really taxed 45%? Definitely not on the US side, perhaps on the Spain side, but we would need to, again, one size doesn't fit all. We need to understand your, your situation in Spain uh, inside out, because obviously there's some things that are deductible, some things that are not, and that will determine what tax bracket you fall into. Uh, I'm actually doing a, uh, a webinar on that tomorrow. But otherwise, you can shoot me an email and either myself or my colleague in, in uh, Barcelona, Ricky, can get into that. Otherwise, you can join us on the webinar tomorrow where we talk about Spain. So hope that helps. Next question. Someone is asking about a section 962 election for reducing guilty taxes. Okay, so let's, let's, for those who may not be familiar, so for those who among you who are investors, uh, and it, aside from the person who asked this question, if it is that you have invested using an entity in a lower tax jurisdiction, not necessarily a tax haven, but just a lower tax jurisdiction. So that could be like your Singapore at 17%, Hong Kong 16 and a half, uh, Malaysia Lab One 3%, or BVI Cayman zero, right? So let's assume that you've invested using, or you're doing business using an offshore structure. You, you've invested using somehow into uh, an offshore company that is a low tax in a low tax jurisdiction. It may be, and it's a control foreign corp, i.e. more than 50% of the value of votes. So 10, 10, uh, that tends to suggest that more than 50% of the shareholding is in the hands of US persons, then you may be subject to what is called guilty. Guilty came in at the end of 2017 under the Tax Cut and Jobs Act under President Trump. Uh, what that means is that it, it provides, what, what I guess the intent of the law was to incentivize uh, money that is being held in companies outside to come back into the US and to incentivize people to invest using US structures, right? So what it means is that you may be subject to tax on income that sits on the balance sheet. So before this Tax Cut and Jobs Act, if it is that the company made a profit, you as a shareholder are only subject to US taxes if you receive the distribution in the form of a bonus or salary or a dividend as a shareholder, right? No longer. If it is in a low tax jurisdiction, it may be subject to this guilty tax. So it's basically a tax on phantom income. It's a tax on income you did not yet receive, but they believe they, that you will eventually receive it. So yeah, a lot of people hate it. We're, we're just a bearer of the news. We're not responsible for it. So I'm sorry about that. One way around it 
was uh, making a, a section 962 election, right? So what that meant is that, remember the law was intended to provide an advantage to those who were investing through investing in these offshore companies through US structures. So let's say through a US C Corp. If you're investing through a US C Corp, and that's at a time where this act also reduced the, the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21%. The guilty tax rate would be, uh, it won't be eliminated, but it would be dramatically reduced by making this 962 election. So even though you may, be, you may have invested it in your own name, you can elect, and it sounds weird, but that's the way it works. You can elect through section 962 to treat the investment as if it didn't come from you as the US person, but it came from your C-Corp. So imagine you had a C-Corp, you get to imagine you had a C-Corp and you invested through that C-Corp and you got a reduction in the tax rate. So that's how it worked. So what this person is saying, well, you know, hey, we all do it for guilty. But what if it has nothing to do with guilty, and I'm not in a and my company's not in a treaty jurisdiction? Can I just elect, uh, make a section 962 election when it's not for guilty, just to I can receive dividends at a, a lower tax rate, so I can get them at like a qualified dividend tax rate, so I can get them at like a 23.8 percent rather than. Uh, my marginal tax rate, which might be 35, 37%. Can I do that? The answer is I've heard of people doing it, but we don't recommend it. And, you know, before to the Tax Cut and Jobs Act in 2017, no one was really talking about 962, but and 962 has been around since the 1960s uh, under subpart F. So some it's, it's an old law, but it really became popular post 2017. We believe that it may be pushing it a bit to use it outside of the guilty context. It may be pushing it a bit to use it when you have investments in a non-treaty company, in a, in a company in a non-treaty jurisdiction. And to substantiate that, we refer to case because of course the US is a common law jurisdiction. So you can't look at just tax code. You need to look at case law as well. So there's a case of Smith v. Commissioner and you can have you can Google it. You can have a look at it, and so we'll we don't need to get into the obscurities of the case. But we basically took position that because of Smith v. Commissioner, that's not a good idea. If the IRS were to have a closer look at it, they'll throw it out. So no, we don't do it. We only tend to use a 962 election for guilty, not just for any dividend coming out of a company that you've invested in in a non-treaty jurisdiction. Hope that helps. Next question. All right, crypto. I was wondering when the crypto guys will start asking, you know, we always get crypto questions. Okay. I'm a crypto investor, isn't everyone? And I heard talk about crypto transactions over 10K being reportable. Can you talk to that, please? Okay. In, in a way, Okay, it's not it's not new. You're right. It is. It has been contemplated. It, I, I don't know if it's been enacted as yet, but it is being considered by Treasury Department and Treasury. Understand that the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, is a part of the Treasury Department. So Treasury Department has a number of divisions. The most popular of which, or the most unpopular of which, is Internal Revenue Service. There's another division called FinCEN, Financial Crimes Enforcement Network they already have rules around regular currency transactions. If you are a business in the US and you receive under certain circumstances, of course, if you receive a payment of $10,000 or more in cash from any customer, you're under a legal obligation to report that to FinCEN. You need to fill out some forms and fill that in. That law already exists. It's already a thing. And you know that like when you're passing through the airport, like. Uh, well, before you have to fill out the cards when you're entering the US, right? This kind of like these blue forms or whatever. Now you do it on the screen, right? And one of the questions they ask you is, do you have currency or instruments of $10,000 or more? So it's always been a question. So what they've done is simply extended it to crypto. If it is that uh, 
you are involved in whatever business or whatever it is you're doing and you receive uh, crypto assets with a fair market value of more than $10,000 equivalent, then a report would need to be filed. Uh, again, I'm unsure whether this, this regulation has been finalized, whether it's enacted as yet, but that is the intent and I have no doubt that it would be soon. So you're correct, but that kind of brings it aligned with uh, existing currency, which is a kind of, which is I know kind of hypocritical because uh, the government maintains that crypto is not a currency-ish, yet by doing this, it's kind of treating it like a currency. But anyway, it's a contentious space. Let's move on. Okay, somebody wants to go back to guilty, another investor. Like many of us, I have a company in a low tax jurisdiction and I am subject to guilty. I heard guilty may be changing. How would it change? Now, a lot of changes are being contemplated by the Biden administration. And we, that could be a whole webinar on its own, the changes being contemplated by the Biden administration. And remember, these are just plans. Nothing has been enacted yet. And even though the White House has a specific agenda, they have a perspective. You know, we still live in a democracy, it's separation of powers. The, the legislature is separate from, um, from the judiciary and, and is separate from the executive, right? So we have those separation of powers. So the executive can have the best idea in the world, but it needs to go through the legislature, right? So naturally, and usually when that happens, it's subject to compromise and discussion. So, you, I mean, President Biden's plan has been around for a while since the campaign. So we know what it is, uh, but there's no guarantee that it's gonna happen. So I wouldn't obsess with it too much, but it is worth considering as you uh, revise your structures and, and plan for the future. So we spoke about guilty previously. The once with the 962 election, and the, the, the tax that you had to pay on the phantom income, so the money that was retained, you retained earnings basically for your foreign CFC in a low tax jurisdiction, it was around 10.5%. So it was like half of the corporate tax rate, which is 21%. One of the changes being contemplated is, first of all, the corporate tax rate is uh, expected to move up. The White House wants it to move up to 28%, so from 21 to 28%, and the guilty to be moved up from 50% of the value of the corporate tax rate to 75% of the value. So in other words, it'll go up to about 21%. But again, this is just a plan. It's not set in stone. But generally speaking, if you are a higher income earner, you may wanna start having that exploratory conversation with your tax advisors. Because if you're earning like 400K or more, you have offshore structures, chances are what passes through Congress may impact you. So you may want to plan ahead. Uh, so yes, do keep that in mind. Next question. Going back to crypto. Yes, you know, we always, we, we don't get as many crypto questions as before, but we still do get some. So this question is, which crypto trades are reportable? Yeah, so the guidance on crypto transaction from the IRS has been less than adequate and it has left many tax professionals and crypto investors like yourself guessing, right? The two main, main uh, uh, guidelines we have or notices or rulings that we have from the Internal Revenue Service will be 2014-21 and 2019-24. So this tells us that you incur a taxable event from your crypto investing uh, when you in, um, when one of the, let's say four transactions occur. So you have, a, you, when you're doing a, a trade that uh, converts crypto to fiat, for example, the US dollar, it doesn't have to be the US dollar, but it could be euros, it could be yen, whatever. But when you, uh, engage in some sort of transaction that converts crypto to fiat. 
that that may trigger a reporting requirement and therefore trigger uh, a tax liability as well. When you are trading from crypto, uh, from one cryptocurrency to the other. So before, you know, there was uncertainty, uncertainty around that, but it's been confirmed. If you're trading crypto to crypto, that may be taxable, may be reportable. When you're spending crypto to purchase goods or services, and when you're earning crypto as income, so you're performing a service for someone and they pay you in Bitcoin, they pay you in crypto. So those four situations may be a taxable event. You need to speak to your advisors as to how it will be treated. So keep that in mind. And it may also be worth considering the differences between those who are crypto investors and crypto traders. We get into that later on because I see someone else has asked questions about that. But, uh, but just to keep it simple at this point, you're trading crypto to fiat, you're trading one crypto to another, uh, you're spending crypto to buy something, or you're earning money in crypto. Talk to your tax advisor as to whether you have uh, a reportable transaction from, from an IRS perspective. Okay. Moving on. I know this talk is about US taxes, but I do business in the EU. So could you please talk about DSC-6? Okay, I allowed this one, but it's a bit off topic, right? But I'll include it anyway, but I'll, but I'll include it to make a specific point. So the, as, as you are an international, as you work internationally, as you invest internationally, it does make sense to be cognizant, not just of US tax rules, but other international tax rules as well, because they will impact your business. And if you're not uh, conscious, if you're not compliant with those rules, you can get into trouble, right? So within the EU, uh, a piece of legislation, I think it was passed like in 2018, but it actually came into force this year across the EU and to a lesser extent in the UK as well. I think because the UK has left the EU, they have like a watered down version of it. But essentially what it involves is that anyone who is exposed to more than one jurisdiction or doing a deal in more than one jurisdiction within the EU or between you know, just more than one jurisdiction. Let's keep it like that. The nature, and they were, they've been advised by an attorney or an accountant. The nature of that transaction needs to be disclosed. So it, I'm not saying that there's a tax liability automatically, but what they want, the EU wants a register in HMRC in the UK. They want to create a register of every cross-border transaction. It sounds really wide, but you know, it's brand new and right now it's being interpreted as very, very broad. So anything that may import, uh, impact on, it may mean, it's, it could be completely legit, but it may mean that you are able to lower your tax liability by taking advantage of certain structures. It may mean that you, it may not be reportable under the automatic exchange of information, whatever the case may be. It, it's still reportable in this, I guess they're creating some sort of registry so it's reportable in the jurisdiction in which it happened, whichever EU jurisdiction happened or, or HMRC in the UK. Now, why am I mentioning this? I'm mentioning this because it signifies a wider trend. So we spoke about, so I'm sure you guys are sophisticated enough. You're aware of FATCA, the Financial Account Tax Compliance Act, which came in under President Obama uh, around 2010, 2011. And it's not a tax, it's a framework for information exchange. So countries across the world, like Spain, like uh, China, like Israel, everywhere, they are going, they are bypassing their domestic bank secrecy rules. They are putting them aside and obligating all domestic financial institutions to go through their books and flag anyone that they suspect of being a US person. Even if they, op even if you, open your account at TD in Toronto using a Canadian passport. If that bank officer suspects that you may still be a US person, you're US exposed, even though you deny it, they're legally required to report this under FATCA. So it started with that. It followed up with the automatic exchange of information, which is like FATCA, but everyone is exchanging information back and forth. 
and, and then with D, uh, this DAC6, it takes it to the next level. And what you would find is that a lot of the unlicensed, unregulated tax advisors, they're kind of aware of this. So they won't, they, they run their websites, they run their YouTube channels or whatever from outside of any regulated jurisdiction. So they won't do it in Western Europe. They'll choose an Eastern European country. They won't do it in Singapore. They might do it in Malaysia or Thailand. They won't do it in the US. They'll sit in Mexico and they'll do it. So, and what I, the, the point I wanna let you know is they're doing that for a reason because of the stricter and stricter regulations being put into force. So, you know, caveat emptor, buyer beware. The, the, the age, the, the times and the, the era of being able to hide that's long gone. Uh, transparency is everywhere. Secrecy is dead. And you are better off doing the right thing, working with advisors who are qualified and regulated. To, to help you stay on the right side of the law. Because if you ever get caught out, you can't point your fingers at them, uh, all eyes on you. You're ultimately responsible. So hope that helps. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, this is an interesting question. Is it true that uh, all wealthy investors uh, live a nomadic lifestyle like James Bond this sort of international man of mystery. Yeah, well, that is, of course, very subjective. But fortunately, you know, uh, fortunately, there has been some research that has been conducted. And what I encourage anyone to do, and it's, it's a guy that I, I discovered quite recently. His name is Dr. Cristobal Young. I think he was a tenured professor at Cornell and Stanford. So he kind of knows what he's talking about. And what, he, what he's known for, at least what he's been quoted in New York Times and stuff, is that he has gone through years of tax returns, like federal tax returns, anonymized, of course, so you don't know who it is. So because the IRS does publish data on, you know, what people in different wealth brackets are, are doing or trends just so that it helps government policy. So what he did is he tracked the returns for those making a million plus for like over 10 year period or something like that. You can just Google him and check him out. And what he found, and it's been substantiated by research by other academics as well. So it's not just a one-off. And I've also seen anecdotal evidence, you know, like interviews with international law firms in New York or whatever. They all come to the same point there's a correlation between wealth and mobility. So generally speaking, the wealthier someone is, the less likely they are to move. So all the publicity about, you know, billionaires or millionaires leaving Connecticut or California or Jersey or New York to go down to Texas or Florida, they may be a bit exaggerated because when you look over time, according to the data that these guys had access to. It, that's not the way it is. Internationally, I think what they did is they reviewed data from Forbes uh, magazine, because you know Forbes publishes lists of high net worth people around the world. Now, out of certain emerging markets, that is correct, they do move, they do relocate. So I guess, for example, in Southeast Asia, you know, high net worth people from Indonesia, or um, Malaysia may relocate to Singapore, for example, or from certain parts of Africa, North Africa to Dubai. But generally speaking, when it comes to the US, the richer someone is, the more they stay put. Why? Then you may think, well, what about all of the stuff that we read about saving taxes or saving money on taxes? When someone is wealthy enough, they can afford to hire teams of accountants and lawyers to exploit, legally exploit opportunities to save themselves on taxes. They don't need to go through the inconvenience of moving around. And don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that they don't have like a second residency or a second passport or they don't travel. They don't have a nice yacht and they sail around Mediterranean or whatever, but their primary residence tends to remain the same 
they hire their income. Now, there's been also some research that shows they hire um, someone's education. So the more educated someone is, the more likely they are to move. So uh, I don't know how to reconcile those two, but you know, have a look at Christabel Young uh, and, and the research that he's done. So I do encourage, and I do see the value in terms of quality of life, uh, of getting your second residencies, getting second passports and seeing the world and taking advantage of investment opportunities all over. But there's no need to move country to reduce your taxable income. Once you can afford the right advice, there's absolutely no need to do that. And, you know, I, I've dumbfounded and confounded clients all the time, you know, up to this yesterday, last week, because they've been bombarded by social media saying that that's exactly what you have to do. And when I prove and I demonstrate with all the examples that you can probably save more than by staying put and it's less inconvenience travel, yes, but you can, you, there's no need to move to save on taxes. Then, you know, it, it's, it does seem counterintuitive to them, but you know, it is what it is. So that's that. And again, I have an article on that on hda.tax, uh, quoting Dr. Christabel Young. Next question. Right, someone is asking, going back to PFIX, so I guess we have a lot of investors, people who are investing abroad, which is good. That's the right thing to do. Could you talk about valuing goodwill to mitigate PFIX status based on the asset test, right? Let's talk about what a PFIC is. So we spoke about guilty as a, a means that the IRS, one of the mechanisms that the Internal Revenue Service has to tax people who invest overseas in structures that may put them at an advantage over someone who is investing domestically in the US, right? So there's some, the, the three main pieces of legislation you're gonna hear about as an investor would be subpart F, uh, which is from the 1960s, uh, PFIX, Passive Foreign Investment Companies from the 1980s, and Guilty from 2017. There are others, but those are the main ones you're gonna hear about as an investor. Now, basically uh, your investment would qualify as a PFIC if it, uh, it's captured under one of two tests. If more than 50% of the assets of the company that you've invested in is being held for, to, for generating passive income, like capital gains, dividends, and interest, it's a PFIC. Or if more than 75% of the income, when you look at the income statement or whatever, if more than 75% of the income is passive in nature, then it's a PFIC. So basically you're looking at uh, like foreign mutual funds. That's, that's essentially what it's trying to capture because domestic, US domestic financial institutions were complaining that, hey, People were able to invest abroad and, and there were a tax advantage in so doing. So that's where the PFIC regs came up. So that, that provides context as to what it is. Uh, there is, under certain circumstances, I've seen it done, where, where if someone is trapped, the investment is being categorized by as a PFIC because of the asset test. They can, under certain circumstances, I've seen it done when they value goodwill. It may help with the threshold, keep them below that 50% threshold. But again, we did that in concert with US tax attorneys as well as qualified valuers, valuators, so uh, valuation firms. So basically law firms that specialize in company valuation. So you don't just make stuff up. Every step has to be documented. Every step has to be properly evidenced. So yes, it's possible once you have the right advice. And sorry, before I go into the next one, I'm just gonna switch around to see what else people are, are talking about. Hold on. Because I'm seeing some chats in some of the boxes, uh, someone is asking, what is your recommended business structure if an American plans on starting a multi-million revenue business outside of the U.S.? Not a U.S. company, nor operating in the U.S. I've been told LLCs are treated as personal income versus company income, but they advise corporate structure is very complicated. 
what is the threshold of profit that is worth doing a foreign corporate structure instead of an LLC? It really depends. It really depends. So it depends on the shareholders. For someone to advise on something like this, they'll need to talk to you about who are the shareholders. Is it just yourself as an American or are there any other nationalities involved? Uh, where are you going to be based? Where are the decision makers going to be? The management team, where do they sit? Because there's um, an international tax rule called place of effective management. So even if you are incorporate a company in, let's say, let's make up a popular one, BVI or Cayman or the UAE, like Dubai. Just because it's incorporated in a, in a different jurisdiction doesn't mean it's taxable there. If the decision makers are sitting in Portugal or Canada, or they're sitting in France, even though that company is incorporated somewhere else, the point is it being run from Canada, from Portugal or from France, and it's taxable there. So we need to know where do the decision makers sit? Uh, where do the customers sit? Where do the staff sit? And whether there are any, what is the nature of the product or service being offered for sale? And all of those go into the mix to decide what the right structure is. So it really depends. So you need to take a, a deeper dive into it with a tax advisor or an advisory team, because it's unusual for one person to know everything. And when one person claims to know everything, I get super nervous, right? I'm not a one person show. I have a great team who, you know, we rely on each other to get stuff done. So when we need to understand all of those factors in order to advise that there is no monetary threshold over which one structure is preferred over another. It really depends on the facts and circumstances of the case. Okay. I'm flipping back now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Ooh, I'm a serious crypto investor. Yeah, of course. Lots of serious crypto investors. Some guys have done amazingly well and some have not. But I think I'm a, I should be categorized as a crypto trader. What is the difference and what's in it for me if I am a trader? Okay. So... There are rules around trading, but unfortunately in the US tax code is not very clear cut. These rules are driven, our understanding of how the IRS views it is driven by case law and case law is subjective. So, you know, it's a detailed conversation, but anyway, some leading tax minds have interpreted case law to show uh, like a two part test to qualify for what is called uh, a tax trader status, right? Uh, the first thing you're looking at is the trading activity needs to be substantial, regular, frequent, and continuous. And then the second thing is the taxpayer must uh, demonstrate that they intend to catch swings in daily market movements and profit from these short-term changes rather than buy and hold. It's not a long-term thing that every day they're on top of this, right? So sometimes IRS agents, uh, when you're dealing with the IRS, they, they look at uh, IRS publication 550. So that's something that you could look at or together with your tax advisor. Uh, chapter four, IRS publication 550. The special rules for traders. So there they look at what are the holding periods for the, for the securities. In this case, the crypto, how long are you holding it for between buys and, uh, buying and selling? The frequency and the quantum, how much are you turning over? And, you know, how dependent on you uh, are you on this? Is crypto the only way in which you earn a livelihood? Or is it like something you do on the side? Is it your main source of income? Does it take up most of your time? How much time do you devote to this daily? So again, substantial, regular, frequent, and continuous. So that's what, that's what the IRS is going to look for. And that's therefore what you and your tax team need to be conscious of. Of course, if you do qualify as a trader, as opposed to an investor, you may be subject to more preferential tax rates, which is why you need to be very, very careful. Make sure you check all the boxes, speak to the right people before you qualify and categorize yourself by that. Because yes, I know it's attractive because I know what you're chasing, but bear in mind that the rules are pretty strict and they're very nuanced. So hope that helps.
And another question, what if I have an offshore company? Again, someone else who he considers, he or she, considers himself more of an investor. So basically you're asking the same thing as the previous person, but whereas the previous person was asking about a US structure, you're asking about a foreign structure. Okay. The difference between a trader and an investor is it's nuanced and it's unique to every jurisdiction. So what I gave you just, what I gave just now for the US is not applicable to every jurisdiction. Everyone has their own way of defining that. So in the UK, for example, HMRC, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, they look at what are called badges of trade and then nine badges of trade. And you'd find, I'm using the UK because for a lot of former UK colonies, so for example, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Caribbean, parts of Africa, they want to follow these badges of trade. So it's a useful guide if you, because those are the more common English speaking offshore jurisdictions that you use as part of your structure. So the nine badges of trade, you, you must have profit seeking motives, the number of transactions, look at the number of transactions, just like in the US, the nature of the assets, uh, the existence of uh, similar trading transactions or interests, changes to the asset, the way in which the sale was carried out, the source of your finance method of acquisition, and again, the time period between purchase and sales. So you need to sit with your tax team and make sure that, you know, according to the badges of trade as exists in whichever jurisdiction you have your structure that you do qualify as a trader and you're structured accordingly to enjoy the benefit. Because again, it is attractive because it's tax preferred as opposed to just being an investor, right? So, okay. I'm just gonna flip to some other screens to see what other questions have been raised. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay, that's good. Okay. Any other questions? I'm I'm back on Zoom now. Any any other questions from those of you on Zoom? All right. Okay. I'm glad we we're able to answer the questions that you posed. Again, stepping back, summarizing as a US exposed person whether it is you have a US passport, you have a green card, so, or, or you have what is called substantial presence. So you've spent enough time in the US, which has happened a lot for people who were stranded because of travel restrictions because of the pandemic. You are being taxed on your worldwide income. It is what it is. Those who promise that you are able to live tax-free by just jumping in a plane and going somewhere else, very unlikely. You will always be taxable in your worldwide income once you're a US citizen or a green card holder. Uh, you do have certain advantages like you do have section 911 foreign earned income exclusion, which allows you to uh, exclude up to, well, it moves, it in, moves each year with inflation, I think. So I think last year it was like $107,600. It moves up. Plus you get to exclude, you get, to, you get a housing deduction, stuff like that. But generally speaking, aside from a few opportunities, your worldwide income remains taxable. I tell you to do your best. The four things, remember, financial accounts or bank accounts, B, you need to report them. The penalties with international tax, the, the, the IRS is counterintuitive. You may think they're about collecting revenue. No. Most important thing to the US government is information. They want to know what you're up to. So the penalties for not paying taxes, interest, whatever. But if you don't report one of your foreign accounts, it can be up to 50% of the unreported balance per year. It can be pretty draconian. We've seen cases where people have levied, been levied penalties that are in excess of the amount in the account. So there's an account in Switzerland from, with a million dollars in it, and they got uh, penalties of $1.5 million because the IRS deemed that they didn't report it over three years, so it's 50% per year over three years, so 1.5. Information is super important. So B, report those bank accounts. E, pay attention to estimated tax payments. S, keep in mind that you may still have state reporting or uh, tax liabilities because of state source income or you're still domiciled there. 
and T transfer taxes. If you've been gifting or you've been receiving gifts or investing, that stuff is reportable as well. And failure to report that uh, could be pretty aggressive uh, in terms of penalties, civil penalties, and potentially criminal, depending on how it's structured. So thank you for joining us. This uh, live stream would be, uh, yep, thanks, John. So this live stream will be um, edited a little bit and be posted on wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, YouTube. We would also put it on uh, Facebook. It's also going to be on Facebook as well. So feel free to listen to it. And at hj.tax, you will see what our upcoming webinar topics are. Feel free to join us next time. If you have any specific questions, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn like some of you have, or you can just shoot us an email at help at hj.tax. That's help, H-E-L-P, at htj.tax. Thank you for coming. See you next time. Bye-bye. Here are four ways we can help you. Number one, sign up for free webinars on U.S. Expat Taxes and International Entrepreneur Taxes at www.htj.tax. Number two, stream premium educational videos at www.htj.tax. Number three, contact us for tax optimization consult over Zoom. Number four, high net worth. We can quote for doing your U.S. international taxes returns. Our books and upcoming events are available at htj.tax. Please subscribe, like, share, and comment below. Email us at help at htj.tax to engage us to advise on international tax or business matters.